a warm welcome to the latest episode of Talking Golf with me, Hugh Marr. I've never been obsessed with score. I've always been one who felt that the venues and the camaraderie is what's really fun. And using the word fun, people need to understand golf ought to be fun. If you're not enjoying it, then go bowling or something (laughs) Welcome back to another episode of uh, Talking Golf, where I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by uh, a gentleman who has seen, I guess, many generations of the game, both the ladies' and the men's game, uh, Charlie Meckham. Is that how I pronounce your surname, Charlie? Uh, Meacham is more... Uh, <laughs> Meacham's uh, even better. Okay. <laughs> so, Charlie, why don't we give the listeners a little bit of background as to, uh, as to who you are and what your life in golf, if you like, has, has entailed? What's it involved? I won't take uh, your listeners or you through... Uh, a slow trudge of my <laughs> history, but to put it in perspective in terms of golf, I ran for about 25 years an entertainment company in the United States called Taft, TAFT Broadcasting Company. In the course of that, I had a couple of exposures to golf that came back later in uh, much more uh, volume and, and much more detail. Yep. The first was we built a golf course using my good Ohio friend, Jack Nicholas. It was one of the first courses that Jack designed when he left his partnership with uh, Pete Dye. So I got to know Jack quite well uh, as a result of our association in building that course. And uh, we then did several other projects together over the years, and we remained very close friends. Mm-hmm. And I'll come back to that in a minute because there's a funny story there. The second exposure to golf came when we sponsored on the course that Jack had built the LPGA championship. We did that for 10 or 12 years and that was one of the LPGA's majors. And so I got to know a lot of the LPGA players of that vintage. So uh, later after we, we sold tap broadcasting company in the, mid to late eighties. And Mm -hmm. I went back to the law firm that I had once been associated with. And one day I got a call from the gal who was then the president of the LPGA players association and Judy Dickinson, Gardner Dickinson's uh, wife, by the way, she said, uh, would you have any interest in being considered to be commissioner of the LPGA? And I said, good heavens, I've, I've not even thought of it. But, you know, I consider anything at this point. I'm sort of trying to decide what my next life will be. I was then, I guess, uh, about 60. And so uh, we got together, make a long story short, I was hired to become commissioner. And I served as commissioner from, uh, trying to remember the exact, I took over a little bit earlier than they thought I might, but I did it for five years. Now, the funny story that I wanted to allude to is that, When I was approached, I thought, you know, I better talk to a few people about whether this is a good move for me, or for that matter, is it a a smart move for the LPGA? So I called Nicholas, and I went down to see him in his office in North Palm Beach, and I said, Jack, I've been asked to be commissioner of the LPGA. Do you think that's something I ought to do? And he pulled back and smiled and he said, you better, I recommended you. (laughs) (laughs) So that was uh, a surprise. And uh, 
and it went from there. So that's how I got in the golf business. Fantastic. Now, you've been around the game, I guess, for the better part of 50 years at the very highest level. And obviously, you've, you've been party to the massive changes in equipment, the increase in length of golf courses, the change in conditioning of golf courses, obviously the, the distance the ball's going for a number of reasons. Do you think the game is in better shape now than it was, say, in the mid-60s when Nicholas and Palmer and Player were, were at their prime? Well, you have to forgive me. Uh, I'm almost 89 years old, and I guess some people would say, well, you're bound to, to uh, talk about the good old days. I try not to do that, but I must say, I do think there's certain things about the game that are not as good and as strong as they were in those days of of Arnie and Jack and Casper and Player and on and on. Way back, both Arnie and Jack made a plea to control the golf ball so that we wouldn't have these uh, driver wedge five uh, pars. Yep. They were ignored. And I think, the, I think the game has paid a price for their being ignored. And it wasn't just them. It was others as well. Yep. But uh, in today's game, as you very well know, it, it's basically a driver wedge game. And I think that's unfortunate because, to me, some of the greatest golf shots ever were done with one irons or two irons or even, God forbid, drivers, driver irons. And I remember, for example, uh, of course, Hogan's fabulous one iron. And, of course, Jack hit an incredible one iron, uh, hit the flagstick at 17 at Pebble Beach. The players don't even carry. Maybe once in a while, a guy will have a three iron. But I, I think that's a loss. It means that strength, as opposed to finesse, is more important, and I'm, I'm not sure that's, that's a good idea. And, of course, it's played hob with a number of uh, golf course owners mm-hmm. who have either had to spend an enormous amount of money, time, and trouble to lengthen their courses, or if they're unable to do that, they lose their place in, in the ranks. Now, on the other hand, clearly there are some good things that have happened. I, I think there are more competitive players now than there used to be. Witness, yep. witness yesterday's uh, PGA Tour victory by a young yes, man. Was, I watched it till yeah. the very end, and it was, it was a great golf tournament. So that's great. I think that's wonderful. But I do wish that uh, we had more control. And I don't see really at this point, Hugh, I don't really see anything that's going to stop the length of the drives any, any more than, the, than now. So. That part troubles me. I'm very torn because personally, I think the game of golf just now is in fantastic shape. I love, I've said it many times before in the podcast, that I I love to see great players doing great things that I'm not capable of. And it just so happens that in this generation, that means hitting it way further than I hit it. Whereas even going back, I grew up in the, the Faldo era, where he was probably one of the last great shot makers. You talk about great long irons, that three iron he hit on 13 at Augusta off the hanging lie is one of the most incredible shots in my memory. But I tend to agree, I don't see where this is going to stop now because as soon as you start to engineer the equipment, it's just going to give the bigger hitters an even bigger advantage over the shorter hitters. Very true. Mm -hmm. It's hard to take a firm position either way 
but as I say, I, I greatly regret and miss seeing the one, two, and three irons being used as the great old players use them. Yeah. The, the way I've chosen to interpret that is that I don't think the game's any less skillful now. It's just a very different set of skills that were, that were required to 25 to 50 years ago. It's become quite polarized in terms of who can be good. So when it comes to coaching junior players, who are maybe between sort of 15 and 18 now, that if they don't hit it out there 300 plus, they're probably not going to be able to play the game for a living. And that is a great loss. It truly is. And that, that summarizes my position very well. You know what? What I never will forget, uh, right after we built the golf course with Jack in Ohio, uh, he said to me, Charlie, we're going to have a PGA Tour event here next year. And I almost had a heart attack. I said, Jack, this course is, is designed for public play. The trees are about four feet high. We can't have it. He said, Charlie, let me tell you something. He said, any golf course can be made tournament ready. All you got to do is three things. One, grow the rough mm -hmm. about twice as high as you normally would. Number two, narrow the fairways about half as much as you normally would <laughs> and make the greens lightning fast. <laughs> so maybe we need to do more of that. Well, it's funny because I, I look at the courses we play over here in, in our European tour and the memorable courses now aren't 7,500 yards long. The memorable courses are Hong Kong, which I think is barely even 6,800 yards. It's narrow, it's bouncy, it's grainy. The greens are always quick. The rough is just deep enough to make it difficult to get the ball to stop on the green, whether you're hitting an approach shot or a chip shot. Yeah, yeah. And I would love to see more courses being set up that way. I quite agree. And the, that would be one way to control the the distance problem. And the PGA Tour, I think, seems to be particularly guilty of this just now in that their solution just seems to be bigger and bigger and bigger. Whereas, yeah. let's use last week as an example, the Honda course is by no means one of the longest courses on tour, but the setup is such that it starts to ask slightly different questions of the players. That's right. And that, to me, makes interesting viewing. I agree. As a golf enthusiast, that makes interesting viewing. So while we're on the topic of the changes that we're experiencing in the game just now, What's your take on the issues we're experiencing around the new rules changes? <laughs> Again, I'm going to show my age, I guess, but over the years, I've seen this sort of scenario play out over and over again. You could issue the Ten Commandments today and have half of the, of the players criticize them. It's just crazy. These are, these are things that the USGA, and so heaven knows they, they have their faults, but a lot of work from the RNA and USGA went into this. And my opinion would be to the players, just quit whining, just play. And that, so I'm maybe more forceful on this than I should be. No, no, I'm 100% in your corner here. I think the, uh, the situation that seems to play out with Justin Thomas over the weekend has, has left a bit of a bad taste in the mouth because ultimately he, the players were asked for their thoughts on the rules. They were continually referred to through this process, as were referees, as were tournament administrators, everyone who's involved in the running of proper tournaments at the highest level, whether it's amateur level or professional level, they were all part of the discussions that resulted in these rules changes. Now, you could argue till we're blue in the face whether the change in how to drop the ball is 
of any consequence whatsoever. I think, personally think that's insane. But when we're talking about leaving flagsticks in, when we're talking about three minutes for a lost ball, the biggest challenge we see in the game of golf today is the length of time it takes to play. And they have been right. proactive in addressing that. That's right. Pace of play, in my opinion, is by far the biggest challenge. And I don't see a lot being done about it. I've been talking this for 35 or 40 years that when you ha ask yourself, why has the game of golf, at least in the U.S., not grown? That's the number one problem in my view. If you take a, the term these days is millennial, but if you take a 30-something who's got kids and a family and then you tell them that he's going to take five or six hours out of one, maybe two weekend days to play golf, right? I can understand why it's not appealing. Absolutely. If you're playing a course that's 7,200 yards long, and the great challenge is golfers always want to play the maximum course, they don't want to play the course that's right for them, it's going to take that length of time. Absolutely. So, I mean, on, on pace of play, go back to the mid-60s. Was this a discussion that was going on back then, or is this something that has gradually grown as a problem? My opinion, and, and it's totally without facts or, or perhaps... Uh, data to support it, but I don't remember anything about pace of play in those days, principally because I don't think it was a problem. Guys like uh, Palmer, they move, they move. And, and Jack was slightly slower, but not by today's standards, by any means. And I just don't recall this being an issue. I honestly believe, you that if you would go back to the people who teach golf, I think they're teaching golf in a way that promotes slow play. I couldn't agree uh, more. Waggles and, and standing behind the ball eight different times and, and so on. So that the problem has become serious in recent years because only in recent years, I think, have the instructors and maybe in some cases college, I don't know, but early instructors have, have contributed to this problem perhaps more than any other. And it's compounded by the fact that none of the governing bodies responsible for running these events seem to be proactive in dealing with it. They don't. No, they don't. I don't really understand that. If I was in a position to make decisions today, if a guy goes on the clock and he screws it up, he's out. He's done. Now they whine about going on the clock. My God, if they ever disqualified somebody, there'd be a oh, can you imagine? World War Three. You know, running any institution has its challenges, but it, one of the challenges should never be that the senior executives don't enforce their own rules. Correct. You're right. They're not, it doesn't happen as much as it should. It's not great for the future of golf, for the reputation of golf, but equally, it, it, they're doing a disservice to still, a, I think, a, a vast majority of tournament pros who play the game at a decent pace. That's correct. And That's right. for me, with our European tour, I'm, I've been a little outspoken on this, that we, we had an instance with Bryson DeChambeau when he won in Dubai. And personally, I think Bryson is a great talent. I honestly believe he'll win majors. He's a hell of a golfer. But it took him 90 seconds to hit a wedge shot into the last green. I remember, yeah. And it would be harsh to say it's cheating, but in reality, he is bending the rules as much as he possibly can to his advantage. That's very true. Now, I don't know where the line is between bending the rules and actively cheating, but personally, if you're taking longer than you're allowed to hit a shot 
because that gives you the best chance of executing the shot well, you're definitely manipulating the rules. No question about it. Well, we just got to keep pounding the drum, maybe someday. Well, yeah. God, I hope so, because it's uh, there's so much fantastic good that comes from the game of golf. And unfortunately, I think social media is a lot to blame for this now in that everyone has got a soapbox. Everyone's in a position where they can, just as we're doing here, we're, we're airing our opinions on the ills of the game of golf. But the more that the players have a soapbox to do that on, where they have many million followers, the worse the situation becomes. That's right. At what point are the governing bodies going to say, no, we're going to deal with pace of play. That is as bad as moving your ball in the rough. Yeah, yeah. Because it shouldn't take that long. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm, I'm glad I've got a kindred spirit here. Let's change direction a little bit. The ladies' game, which I think, while the men's game at professional level has certainly got some challenges, the ladies' game really doesn't have, it doesn't have its woes to seek. Where, where do you think the state of the ladies' game is now versus when you were commissioner? Well, I think it's considerably stronger. Selfishly, I think my five-plus years as commissioner advanced the tour from a low point to a strong point. But what we didn't face then, and what Mike Wan has done such a great job of, of facing, was the internationalization of the game. I had a hand in hiring Mike, and I uh, called him after he had been officially announced, and I said, what are you gonna do, Mike, about the pressure for more international events, more international players? Yep. He said, Charlie, I'm not going to fight it. I'm going to embrace it. And that's exactly what he did. He faced the fact that a number of the players were international players and the greatest demand for tournaments and television and, and strong purses was uh, around the world. So I think by recognizing and dealing with the international character of the game, mm -hmm. uh, Mike really set it on the course and I think it's very strong, and it will grow even stronger, not to mention, Hugh, uh, the caliber of play. Uh, just as with the men's tour, the cali the, these young ladies are, are just better, and more, yeah. more of them are better. There's more of them that are better, I agree. And I mean, obviously, there's, there is an imbalance in world ranking points and purse size in the men's game on the PJ Tour versus our European Tour. There seems to be a much, much greater imbalance now between what's on offer in Europe and the rest of the world versus what's on offer on the LPJ Tour. How do you address that? How do you go about trying to redress that balance? Or do you just accept that the LPGA is the only place to play if you want to be any good? I probably shouldn't say this, but I want to try to be honest. I think the LPGA is the place to play. The players over the last, oh, what, 20 years, 25 years, have shown that. And I'm not being critical of the European tour. It's just a fact of life. This is where I remember, and I won't name the player, but I remember asking one of the European players when I was commissioner, why are you here? And she said, I want to play against the world's best. Yep. And I think completely apart from money or number of events, that that is the gold standard. These players want to play against the best. And heaven knows I've got some really good friends on the European tour. Trish and those, those gals are great gals. So I don't want to be looked upon in any way as criticizing them, but reality is reality. 
And I mean, to be fair, Alfie played the majority of her career on the LPGA Tour. Who's that? Helen Alfredson. Oh, yes, yes. And, and Laura, Laura? Absolutely, yep. It makes no sense to me that the Ladies European Tour is trying to compete when it can offer something different, accepting that the LPGA is, that's the gold standard in the ladies game. As I say, I think any true professional always wants to play against the best. Yeah. And I think that's what has been a, a major factor in so many of the, the great European players coming to the LPGA because they want to play against the best. And that's, yeah. again, not to knock the players that don't. There may be a number of reasons why a player can't join the LPGA, uh, family or financial or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's excusable and understandable. But it is what it is. And ladies golf versus men's golf aside, if you want to win major championships, it's very difficult to do that without experiencing the types of course week in, week out that you're going to be playing them on and competing against the players you're going to be playing against. That's, right. that's the same the world over. As I said, it doesn't matter whether that's the ladies game or the men's game. And as you say, what I would call real professionals, the great champions, always want to compete against the very best and prove themselves against the very best. Exactly right. Looking at the game as a whole now, in 2019, how do we make the golf experience better for our leisure players? For the people that are week in, week out, going to the municipals, going to the public courses, going to their country clubs, how do we make the game better for them? Do we need to make the game better for them? Access, obviously, is important. And I think there's been some progress being made there, but still need a lot of work to be done in improving and increasing access. Number two, affordability. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the courses are ridiculously uh, overpriced. And we've already talked about pace of play, which I think is the single biggest culprit, needs to be worked on. And I would say those are the major issues that have to be dealt with. Also, as I said before, I would, I would make an effort to uh, really, and this is being done in many, many ways, in many uh, quarters, improve junior golf. This is where it all starts. Whether it's first tee or the LPGA, uh, USGA girls golf, there are so many ways that I think can improve the game in 2019. Okay, so I want to pick you up on that comment a little bit because I agree that there's the leisure golfers at that age seem to be dwindling on a year-by-year -year basis. The kids that go at me, like I played golf, I didn't really think about being a professional golfer until, I don't know, I'd played golf for maybe 10 years. Maybe not quite 10 years, but I just played golf because I loved playing golf. I, my mates played golf. It was The social thing was good. The interaction with with adults was good, being exposed to an environment that had some kind of structure was good. There was so much positive in my life that came from being a golf club member and just basically living there, certainly during the summer holidays. And I see fewer and fewer of those types of kids at golf clubs, certainly in the UK. Is it the same in the States? I honestly can't answer that. I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me because again, there's this, uh, I, I call it the old the old man's lament of, uh, oh, God, darn it, women out there, these kids, have, you know, come on. <laughs> it was so much better in my generation. 
Well, most of those guys can't hit the ball 150 yards anyway. What do they care? But yeah, I think it, I think it continues to be an issue that you just have to deal with and it's not easy. But by the way, something that I didn't mention that I've been advocating for years and I've picked up a few adherents in recent years. At first I was, I was regarded as a complete heretic. I would and have urged and recommended two sets of equipment rules. Now the problem when you start to talk about two sets of rules, one for professionals and one for amateurs, mm-hmm. people immediately leap to the conclusion you're talking about playing rules. I'm not talking about that at all. Clearly, playing rules should be the same. But I think if X years ago there had been a recognition that uh, you could limit professional players, the golf ball and the, uh, the golf clubs and so on, that you could limit those but still allow amateurs to uh, have access to a, a pumped-up ball or it would have made a huge difference, but that hasn't happened probably too late now. But I, I criticized this years and years ago, and more and more people have come to that conclusion. Whether it can ever happen, I don't know. I personally think uh, I have no issue with the equipment because it's human nature. We just we want to go yeah. faster, stronger, higher, longer. And the reality is that while the golf courses get bigger and bigger and bigger, the argument being that, well, they're, they're hitting it so far now that the courses need to be 7,800 yards. Right. Look at Aaron Hills as an example as a U.S. Open course. It was, and I don't mind saying this publicly, the single worst tournament venue I've ever been to in my life. <laughs> because it just proved that making it longer does not make it more difficult. If you set the courses up in such a way that the players have to consider the strategy element of the game, I think you might see a return to more skillful play through the bag rather than just at the top and bottom end of the bag. You're quite right. And I still think when I think of, I've played in, uh, in the UK a number of times. And uh, in fact, I was a member of Macrohanish for oh, a number of years. Fantastic uh, place. Unbelievable. Many happy memories there. You know, if I had this, you can only play one round of golf I'd probably want to go to Macrohanish, or maybe I'd want to go back to Prestwick, which I love. <laughs> so there are just so many of those things that are important. Yeah. The danger when trying to improve everything is that you disregard history, heritage, the traditions of the game. And I personally love the history of the game. It still fascinates me. And it's something that there's no reason why we cannot use that to make the future of the game better. Very good point. And I remember talking to Arnie. I said, Arnie, uh, what do you think, not the biggest, what's one of the, we talked about problems of the game. And he said, well, one of the problems is the guys make so much money now that they, they don't have to play every week. He said, we had to play every week to keep the, uh, you know, enough money in the bank. And now certain tournaments get relegated or they're no good because so-and-so is not there and so-and-so is not there. You saw it this weekend. I think the world ranking points on offer at, at Honda were way lower than previous years. They were, yeah. And yeah. back in the day, every tournament was a big tournament. And the flip side of that is, I think that Arnie's tournament is going to have one of the best fields it's had in years. But that's the trade-off that guys make. In mm-hmm. the old, they would have played them all. 
So too much of a good thing is is not necessarily the way forward. That's right. Charlie, I'm going to let you go. I can't thank you enough for your time. I know we've, we've had some uh, technical issues trying to get this set up, but it's so nice to talk to someone who's experienced the game for as long as you have and have seen the changes, the developments, the improvements. I guess they're not all improvements, but it's fascinating to talk about the history of the game and, and to get your opinion on where the game needs to go, what the challenges are it's facing just now. Hopefully at some point soon we'll we'll be able to get you back on the podcast to talk more about your memories from the game. Let me just close by saying I I love the game. I've always loved it. I love everything about it. I've never been obsessed with score. I've always been uh, one who felt that the venues and the camaraderie is what's really fun. Yeah. And using the word fun, people need to understand golf ought to be fun. If you're not enjoying it, then go bowling or something else. Uh, we need to always, I think, focus when we're thinking about things is how can we make golf fun? And, of course, that leads to a whole discussion. And one way you make it fun is not have the Bataan death march <laughs> length of, uh, of plus. It all comes back to, in my view, make it fun. I couldn't agree more. That's, a, that's the perfect note to sign off on. Okay. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. It has been my pleasure. Thank you. For those of you that enjoyed listening to Charlie Meacham, he's published two books, Who's That with Charlie and Total Anecdotal. Both are available through Amazon and Barnes & Noble.